right. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That may be one of the scariest passages in Scripture, right? I mean, that's, that's what I called this, this sermon, actually, the scariest passage in the Bible. Um, and it, it, let me just remind you, we, we're kind of on a, on, a, on a roll here, Jesus is, right? These last three sermons that we've looked, like, they're, they're looked at, they're all scary, right, in their, in their own way. So just as a reminder, um, two weeks ago, uh, Pastor Sam preached in the auditorium, and we were all combined in there because of the snow. He preached on the two paths, right, the two gates, that one was a broad gate that, that just has this magnetic pull to it that people seem to go to. It's the one that the, the many will go to. It's the broad gate. And then we have the narrow gate, which is the way of Jesus, right? And we're left with that question, which gate are we taking? Which gate are we taking? And then, and then last week, and, you know, Matthew did a wonderful job in here talking about the, the false prophets, right? This warning about the wolves in sheep's clothing. Because as we're looking at these gates, Jesus knows that we're going to be looking for leaders. And, we, and it's a good thing to have leaders out, of, out in front of you who are wiser than you, who are godlier than you, to lead you down the path of the narrow gate. But we have to know whether that leader is actually leading us the right direction. Are they leading us to life and flourishing, or are they leading us to destruction? And so last week, Jesus, Jesus gave us an encouragement on how to, to, to find out. Well, look at their fruit. How do we find out whether someone is a sheep, or sorry, a wolf in sheep's clothing? And now this morning, it becomes clear that even among members of the church, there are some who look like sheep and are not. There are some who look like Christians, but are not. There are some who do things in the name of Jesus, who claim the name of Christ, who do the things that Christians do, but Jesus says they're not authentic Christians. And that's scary, right? That's scary. I mean, I, and, I, and look, I'm going to say this. I, this has been a passage. I know if you've grown up in church, this has been a passage that I know preachers have taken and they've abused it and they've used it to manipulate and they've used it to get a lot of people to walk an aisle and make a decision that they probably didn't even need to make because they were already Christians. And so I, I hope, let me, let me just say, I hope, my goal, I hope that, that if you are a Christian, and I actually think as I've been studying this passage, I hope if you're a Christian, you will come, more, come out of this more assured than ever <laughs> that you are in Jesus. We, we sang in one of those songs, I have nothing to fear in the future. My, my, I have no faith, that there's no faith that I dread because I am in Jesus. I hope that you will come out seeing that. This is not just to, just to scare you and make a genuine Christian doubt whether they are in the kingdom. But my prayer this week is that, that the Holy Spirit would work, that the Holy Spirit would reveal to some of us in this room if we are deceived, if we're relying, if we're resting on the wrong things, because it would be a grace of God to find that out right now and not when you stand before him one day, on judgment day, right? And so I'm trying to walk that balance here. I hope, I, I hope, and this is, the Holy Spirit has to do this. I hope that if you're in Christ, you'll leave encouraged. I hope that if you're not in Christ, that you'll see it, that you'll know it, that you'll, 
you'll understand that you've been deceived. And so let's work through this passage. We're going to do it carefully, okay, just very carefully. It's not, it's not going to take that long, hopefully, but I'm just going to work through this passage um, carefully, and we're going to start with just three quick points, okay? So it's going to be three and three, three points and then three points. And the first three points are going to be a lot quicker, okay? We're going to look in this passage, and we're going to see three points, three traits that are shared by both authentic Christians and inauthentic Christians, okay? These are the traits that if you're a Christian, you will have them. But Jesus is telling us here that just because you have these traits does not guarantee that you're a follower of Jesus. You see what I'm saying? So here's the three traits, okay? Let me work through them. These are going to be pretty quick. Number one, first trait, theological orthodoxy. Theological orthodoxy. Another, Another way to say this would be right beliefs about Jesus. The right knowledge of who Jesus is. Jesus makes it very clear here that theological orthodoxy does not guarantee that a Christian is genuine. We see that here. Look at verse 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. These people who are not entering the kingdom of heaven, their theology is right. Their theology is orthodox. What do they call Jesus? Lord. Okay, I mean, that's it, right? Jesus is Lord. And they they would affirm that. They, They would affirm that that is true. They have Jesus' identity correct. They are not deceived on that point. They're orthodox in their theology. But here's what we need to see. So are the demons. You know this? The demons are orthodox in their theology. We're going to get into James in the summer, okay? So I'm not going to go too far into this because i got to save it. But in James 2.19, this is exactly the point that James makes. He says this, you believe that God is one. You do well. But even the demons believe and shudder. That's scary, right? He says, you believe, you, you, got, you know who God is. You got that right, okay? You know who Jesus is. You know that he's Lord. Who also knows that Jesus is Lord? The demons, okay? So that alone is not enough. I think it's helpful to think about it like this, okay? Because I'm not putting down the right theological belief, okay? We care a lot about that here. Okay, there's a reason that we, we put a lot of time and energy and resources in the theological study. But I think it's helpful to think about it like this. Theological orthodoxy is like a human skeleton. Okay, you picture this? Can't do anything without the human skeleton. Right? That, that's the base. That's the foundation. All the muscles and ligaments, all that comes from off of the human skeleton, which is the foundation. You have to have that to build off to have a human body. But if you only have a human skeleton... What does that say about you? You're dead, <laughs> okay? Right? Like if, you, if you're only a skeleton, you're dead. So theological orthodoxy is essential, okay? You have to know who Jesus is to be a Christian, right? Like, like someone who doesn't have theological orthodoxy doesn't claim to follow Jesus because they, they don't know who Jesus is, right? You need theological orthodoxy, but that is not enough in and of itself. Here's number two. Here's number two, and this is key because we can think, oh, yeah, I know people like that, cold, dead orthodoxy. They, you know, they they check all the boxes, but they don't actually mean it. Check this out. Number two, enthusiasm. Enthusiasm does not guarantee that you are a follower of Jesus. Notice this. They call Jesus Lord, but do they only call him Lord? (laughs) No, what do they call him? Lord, Lord. You you see that? It, It says actually up there twice. Lord, Lord, in the Bible, whenever you see two words back to back, 
It's like an exclamation point. That's how you put it. You're saying, I'm saying this with passion, right? You see Jesus do this sometimes, right? He's standing in front of Martha at one point. Martha, Martha is what he says. Mary, Mary. It's when you're putting that exclamation on it. You're putting passion behind it. So these aren't people who are just saying, Jesus is Lord. I learned that in Christian school. I know. No, they're, they're pumped about it, right? Jesus is Lord is what they're saying. They're, they're enthusiastic. But when you look at the Gospels, there were a lot of people who were enthusiastic about Jesus. And they didn't make it to the end, did they? There were a lot of people who heard his teachings and got pumped about it. There were a lot of people who saw him do this miraculous feeding and got pumped about it. Because they got fed. That's what Jesus said, right? Like they're, they're mostly pumped about the bread. But people got really excited about Jesus. That's why he was able to draw such crowds, because he was a powerful teacher who did, who did miracles. But the problem was they never fully surrendered to him. They used him for what they were trying to get for themselves. I want him to take down Rome. I want him to give me food when I'm hungry. I want him to give me some good teaching that sounds real good. I want him to do this, 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 this. But what's it for? It's all for me, 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 me. <laughs> it's all about what I can get out of you. That was their problem. They never actually surrendered to him. They never actually followed him. Remember we talked about this the first week when we talked about the Sermon on the Mount. What it means to be a disciple of Jesus is to surrender to him and actually follow his example. They weren't willing to do that. They just wanted the good teachings, and they just wanted the miracles. So enthusiasm isn't enough. And then it gets even more. Here we go. Number three, service in Jesus' name. Service in Jesus' name. Okay. Now, a true Christian will serve. A true Christian will love others, will love God, love people, impact the world. A true Christian will do those things. A true Christian We'll, we'll, we'll hear of these opportunities in our community, and it will stir something in your heart that, hey, I need to help. But someone could serve in all those things that Lisa mentioned earlier and not be genuine. Right? They can do service in Jesus' name. And, and look, notice this. It's, it's not just that. Look, look, look how far Jesus takes it. Here, here's verse 22. He says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name. And do many mighty works in your name. Notice, these people aren't JV. Right? This isn't the JV of the ministry team. This is the varsity. They're casting out demons. Anyone else done that here? Okay, I haven't done that yet. I hope, I hope one day. They're, they're, they're prophesying. They're casting out demons. They're not just doing works. They're doing mighty works. They're killing it. on the, their, their ministry is fruitful. But what is Jesus saying? Not even being on the varsity squad of ministry guarantees that you're in the kingdom. Fruitful ministry doesn't guarantee that you're in the kingdom. A growing church, salvations, baptisms in the church that you lead doesn't guarantee that you're in the kingdom. You with me? Okay. So these are the three things that are bad things to base your decision off of. Okay. Bad things to rely on. I'll say, I mean, I'll say it like this. Okay. The absence of these three things, you should doubt whether you actually are a follower of Jesus. Okay? If you are not theologically orthodox, if you don't hold the historic Christian doctrine, yeah, question yourself. If you don't serve, not saying you have to cast out demons, but if you're not serving others, yeah, that's something that a Christian does. 
If you're not enthusiastic about Jesus, yeah, that's something that Jesus does. But that's not what we rely on. The truth is, you notice, what's the common denominator with all these things? They're all outward. They're all totally outward things. These are things that you can walk into a church and do them, and everyone's going to praise you for it. And and rightfully so, because these are are great things. But they're completely outward things. You can do all these things and still be a whitewashed tomb. You can do all these things and still be that coffee cup that Matthew showed up on the screen last week, if we were here. Beautiful on the outside and dead on the inside. But we can't rely on those things. Um, Thankfully, I'm not stopping the sermon now, okay? Because Jesus actually does give us three things that we can look at to tell whether we are genuine. Traits of a genuine Christian. Okay, so we'll spend a little bit more time on these. Let's go through these three. What what are the marks of a genuine Christian if it's not those things that we talked about? Here's number one. Here's number one. They do the will of the Father. They do the will of the Father. You see that? Verse 21. Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So the inauthentic Christian says the right things, but they don't do the right things. They they remain workers of lawlessness, as Jesus says in verse 23. I mean, Jesus puts it so clearly in Luke. Here's what he says in Luke 6.46. He looks at these people and he says it this way. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you to do? <laughs> why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? You say that I'm the Lord of your life, but you're not acting like I'm the Lord of your life. Uh, remember, th- this is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? This is the end of, of, of everything that Jesus has talked about in this kingdom manifesto, the manifesto of what it looks like to be in the kingdom, to be a follower of his, to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And what he's saying is these are people who can teach the Sermon on the Mount, but they don't follow the Sermon on the Mount. Right? They, they know all of it, but they're not actually doing it. The problem is that they're not doing the will of of the Father. And now let me, let me emphasize, okay, this is not about um, just white-knuckling it and doing things to look impressive to others. That was the problem with the first group, right? This is not about out pharisee the Pharisees, right? That, that's not what this is about. What this is about is change that starts on the inside and then comes outward in the fruit, Because if you have been changed on the inside, if you have surrendered to Jesus and the Holy Spirit is changing you from the inside out, you are going to follow Jesus as his disciple and begin to look more and more and more like him. You understand? You're going to follow him and your life is going to begin to look like the Sermon on the Mount. More and more and more. Not in perfection, but when you look back, you see the growth that is taking place in your life because as you're discipling, as, you're, as you're, you're a disciple of Jesus, as you're apprenticing under him, you're looking more and more and more like him. That is what Jesus is calling us to here, to actually follow his example. So let me just say it. We are almost through the Sermon on the Mount. If at every point Jesus has been talking and you've said, that does not describe me, <laughs> right? That does not describe me at all. That's a, that's a reason to question whether your faith is genuine. Because Jesus is describing what it looks like to live life in the kingdom. You see, you see, you with me, right? This is what it looks like. But 
But, again, as I said, it starts on the inside and comes out. It starts with surrender to Jesus. Here's what, okay, look, look at this. So this is John 640. This is interesting. Jesus says, they don't do the will of my father. Well, what's the will of his father? Here's John 640. He says it. He says, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. To do the will of the father is to surrender to Jesus. That's it, right? To do the, it starts with surrendering to Jesus. It starts with getting on your knees before him and saying, I am not relying on my theological orthodoxy. I am not relying on my enthusiasm for Jesus. I am not relying on the things that I do that are really good and people congratulate me for. What are you relying on? Jesus. I cast myself on you, Jesus. I surrender my life wholly to you. I want to be your disciple. I want to follow you. I know that you lived the life I couldn't live. I know that you died the death that I deserve. I'm trusting in you. And then I want to be your disciple. I want to look more and more and more like you. That's where it starts. That's doing the will of the Father. That's what Jesus is calling us to. That's what genuine followers of Jesus have done. It's not that they've walked an aisle or raised their hand or filled out a card to say they want to be a Christian. It's that they've surrendered wholly to him. That's a Christian. That's a Christian. They entered the narrow gate to go back two weeks ago. And what's the narrow gate? What's the narrow gate? Here's what Jesus says, John 10, 9. He says, I am the gate. (laughs) Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. So what's doing the will of the Father? Trusting in Jesus. He's the gate. It's falling completely on him. Have you done that? Have you done that? Or are you relying on your theological orthodoxy, your enthusiasm, your service, some decision that you made a long time ago when you were seven? What are you relying on? Here's number two. Second trait of a genuine Christian. Jesus knows them. Jesus knows them. The problem with inauthentic Christians is that they know a lot about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus, what does that mean? He doesn't know you. That's what he says. I never knew you. Verse 23, I never knew you. Here's an example that I've thought of this week. I hope this is helpful. Um, it's kind of a goofy way I think about it. So a couple years ago, um, Allie and I took our college students up to a, a conference, a, a missions conference up in Louisville, Kentucky. And the day we get there, um, we were at the hotel. And um, I won't throw anyone under the bus, but we ended up going to the wrong floor, which was one of our faults. I don't know who, but um, it was my fault. Um, but we get off on the wrong floor, and it was, a, it was a sovereign God moment. Because we get off on the wrong floor, the elevator closes behind us. We realize we're on the wrong floor. But J.D. Greer walks around the corner, okay? Now, maybe you don't know who that is, but he's a pastor in North Carolina. He's a guy that God has used um, mightily in my life. I've listened to a lot of his sermons. I've read a lot of his books. Um, I just really appreciate his ministry in my life. And so he walks around the corner, and I kid you not, it is me, Allie, and J.D. Greer standing here with no one else around, just waiting for this elevator. And so I have to talk to him. Right? Like, like I, ha- I have no choice. I have to talk to him. So, I have no idea. Allie says I wasn't weird. I'm sure she's being nice. I'm sure I was weird. <laughs> hey, JD. Like, you know, I don't, I don't know what I, what I said. 
But we, we talked, um, it was actually so weird that we then proceeded to act like we weren't getting on that elevator and walked around the corner, let him go down, and then went back and got on the elevator. But we had this, this quick little conversation. We're talking, you know, I, I think I just told him how thankful I was for his ministry, whatever. And he walks away. And that's cool. I text everyone, I just met J.D. Greer in your face. Awesome, right? Cool. But later I was reflecting on that. And here, this is kind of, as I think back on that moment, here's really what I, what I reflected on and what I felt was the awkwardness of the whole exchange. And not just me being awkward, okay, but the awkwardness of the fact that I was talking to a guy that I know so much about. Okay, I mean, I've listened to his sermons for probably a decade or more. I've read his books. You learn a lot about someone that way. So I know his wife's name, I know where he went to college, I know his kids' names, I know a lot of intimate details about him that he shared in sermons. But as I'm talking to this guy, he has no idea who I am. And I have no idea really, truly, who he is. We don't know each other at all. It was just awkward. So here's the question. When you stand before Jesus one day, will it be like me standing beside J.D. Greer at that elevator? When you stand before Jesus, will it just be kind of awkward? Because you're like, I know so much about you. I went to church my whole life. I learned stories about you every Sunday and Wednesday night and memorized a bunch of verses. But I don't know you. And Jesus is looking and he's saying, yeah, I, I know about you too, but I don't know you. You, you see my point, right? Let me say this. Judgment Day can't be an introduction. Okay? Judgment Day can't be meeting Jesus for the first time. It can't be seeing J.D. Greer by the elevator saying, I know a lot about you, but I don't actually know you. It can't be that. For the Christian, Jesus can never say, I never knew you. He can never say that. And like, I don't know. Here's how I've been picturing it this week. For the Christian, it goes something like this. You're standing there on judgment day, and Jesus says, I have so enjoyed our relationship to this point. I've so enjoyed our time together. And I'm so excited to continue that for the rest of eternity. Is that what he's going to say to you? Or is he going to say, I never knew you. Yeah, I know you did a lot of cool religious stuff, but I never knew you. So that starts, that Jesus saying that, starts with knowing him now and him knowing you now. So what, I mean, what's that look like practically? Here, here's, the, here's the thing. The problem with the inauthentic Christians is that they spend a lot of time prophesying, but not a lot of time in prayer. They spend a lot of time doing things for Jesus, but they never actually gave Jesus a chance to know them. Right? So when you meet Jesus, will it be an introduction or will it be seeing a friend that you already know? And let me, can I give you an encouragement? Okay, I give you encouragement on, on prayer. Okay, because that, that's key, right? Like it's prayer, it's getting to know him through prayer. He invites us to, to engage with him through prayer, to be his, his friend, to talk with him. Can I, give you, can I give you an encouragement? Because here's the thing. Um, 
for most of my life, I thought that my prayer life was horrible. <laughs> I thought that my prayer, my prayer life was just depressing, and maybe it was. But something changed when I realized something. Okay, Here's an analogy I use to explain it. So let's picture that, um, that most days, the vast majority of days, you go over to your dad's house. He lives right down the road. And you go down and you sit on his porch and you sit in a rocking chair and he sits in, his ro- in a rocking chair and you just talk. You spend an hour, two hours, three hours just talking. Do that day after day after day after day. How many of those conversations are going to be memorable? Not many, right? Like, like when you think back, you're not going to be able to say, like, what did we talk about on July 22nd? No, right? Most of them are not going to be memorable. But let's say that your brother lives across the country. He lives in Washington State. And he comes in, and he comes in to visit, and he doesn't talk to your dad that much, but he comes in, and he sits on the porch in that rocking chair, and he's talking to your dad. What's that going to be like? A lot more emotional, a lot more memorable, right? You may, they're going to remember that conversation. Now, here's the question. Who knows your father more? You do. Like, like by far, you know your father more. Here's why I say that, okay? The reason I used to be so discouraged about my prayer life was because I thought that every time I spent time with Jesus, it was supposed to be this big emotional thing, right? Something amazing was supposed to happen. And if that didn't happen, then it was a total failure. But here's what I realized. Knowing Jesus, it's just going to him day after day after day. And sometimes it may be emotional. Sometimes it may be memorable. But vast majority of them aren't going to be. It's going to him day after day after day, pouring out your heart to him, telling him what's on your mind, reading his word, letting him speak to you. It's doing that over and over and over again, even when it gets boring. But here, here's the fruit of that. I can stand before you right now, And maybe this is too bold. I don't know, but I don't think it is. I can stand before you right now and boldly say that if I stood before Jesus and Jesus said, I never knew you, I would say, what are you talking about? What are you talking about, Jesus? No, you knew me. I I talked to you every day. You you spoke to me through your word. We, we spent time together. I, when I was at my lowest, I came to you and I cast all my burdens at your feet. I, I cried out to you when I didn't know what to do. When I was celebrating, I thanked you and I, and I, and I, I thanked you for who you are day after day. Remember, I, we were, I was walking outside in the snow talking to you. I was walking outside in the heat talking to you. I was on my knees in my prayer closet talking to you. Right? Like, I'm like, I knew you, and you knew me. (laughs) You're not meeting me for the first time. You see this? The Christian, ask yourself, does he know you? Have you allowed him to know you? Because that's what he's looking for. He's not looking for you to go out and cast out demons primarily. He He just wants to know you. Can you say that? Can you say that? And that takes us to our final trait, and this will be quick. Final trait of a genuine follower of Jesus. They rest on the grace of God. This is key. They rest on the grace of God. Look at, what the, um, look at what the inauthentic Christians are relying on to enter the kingdom. What is it? The things they've done, right? It's all, look what I've done. <laughs> look at this thing I've done. Jesus, look. 
I've gone to church. I've studied theology. I've taught the Bible. I've cast out demons. I've led Bible studies. I've gone on mission trips. I've evangelized. I've given generously. The inauthentic Christian thinks that's how you enter the kingdom, but the genuine follower of Jesus knows that it is all grace. As I said earlier, it's not out Phariseeing the Pharisees. It's relying on Jesus and what he has done. And here's what that, let me give you, I think this was so helpful to me um, when, I, when I read, I can't remember where I read this, but it was really helpful for me. Um, when we think about the narrow gate, I want you to think about this, okay? We talked about the fact that Jesus says, I am the narrow gate, okay? It's relying on me. That's the narrow gate. But I want you to think about this. Imagine a gate. If you go there in your mind, picture a gate and picture the post of that gate on either side. See it? What are those posts? I read one theologian that pointed out that those posts are actually the first two things that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? The first two things he says, that was a long time ago. Let's see if you can remember. The first two things that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, it's the Beatitudes, right? The first two Beatitudes. Here's what it says. Matthew 5, 3 and 4. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Are you trusting in Jesus? Here's the litmus test. Do those two things describe you? Are you poor in spirit? What does that mean, to be poor in spirit? To be poor in spirit is to acknowledge your spiritual bankruptcy before Jesus. It's to acknowledge that there's nothing I can do. It's to acknowledge that I can't serve enough. I can't know enough. I can't go to church enough. I am, it's, you know what it is? It's being the tax collector in Jesus' parable about the tax collector and the Pharisee, right? The Pharisee's praying, and what does the Pharisee pray? Thank you, God, that I'm not like her. (laughs) Thank you, God, that I'm not like him. Thank you, God, for all the amazing stuff I'm doing. But what's the tax collector say? Have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. That's the posture of a genuine follower of Jesus. Have mercy on me. I am sinner. The Christian life is a life of repentance. So that's one fence post. Here's the other one, though. Do you mourn over your sin? Can I clarify? Do you mourn over your sin, not the consequences of your sin? There are a lot of Christians, sorry, people who say that they are followers of Jesus And they say that they're mourning over their sin, but what they're actually mourning over is the fact that they got caught. They're mourning over the fact that their sin has become public. Do you know, the genuine Christian mourns over their sin. They mourn over their spiritual bankruptcy before God, that they fall short. They're not lovers of self. They're not just trying to get out of trouble. You see that? So what does it look like to trust in Jesus? Are you poor in spirit? Do you mourn over your sin? So that's the three. That's the three. Do you do the will of the Father? Does Jesus know you? And do you truly, are you resting on the grace of God? And so that, it's, a, it's an appropriate day here to do communion. Okay, So that's what we're going to close with. So if you will, go ahead and grab your cup and your bread. We'll start here with the, with the bread. And let me just say, while, while you're getting that, um, when we hear a warning like this, it makes us evaluate, doesn't it? It makes us evaluate where we are. It makes us evaluate um, 
what our discipleship looks like. And let me just tell you, every single one of us, when we evaluate, we're going to look at ourselves and what we're going to see is a lot of sin and a lot of nastiness. That's what we're going to because we're sinners, right? Even like, you know, in the already but not yet, we are citizens, citizens of heaven if we're in Jesus, but we're still living in a sinful world, dealing with our sinful flesh. So we're going to see sin. But communion is a, is a reminder of what Jesus has done so that we can put our trust in him because that's what it's about, right? It's not making ourselves clean. It's running to him so that he will give us life.